Welcome to the Cinema Smorgasbord Holiday Special. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me, as always, is Santa's naughtiest elf, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Would that be, make me Bell Snickle? Is that I'm Bell? Is that is that the name of? Is that uh, is that that's from one of the specials? It's from uh, no, it's from Christmas Chronicle Two, which I've now watched twice because it's my my daughter's favorite. Though anyone who's seen these movies knows that the Christmas Chronicles 2 is significantly worse than the first one. The first one's actually kind of charming. And then the second one is like, it's fine. It didn't make me want to die, which is like often the case with Christmas movies. But uh, it's pretty bad. So the fact that she's like, we have to rewatch it. I'm like, fuck. All right, here we go. Let's do it again. Not not to show off my ignorance, what is Christmas Chronicle? That is the Kurt Russell Santa movie. Oh, yes, of course. Of course. I have not seen it, even though I do have an affection for uh, for Kurt Russell. Uh, I mean, and the second I, one is, is notably worse. Is I wouldn't, I wouldn't have seen it. I mean, it's been out for a while. And I only just saw it this year. But you know, the Maeve was really stoked on getting into some Christmas movies, and so she saw Santa, and she's like, "Let's do this one." And I was like, "All right, Kurt Russell." And it's not good, you know. Like sometimes Christmas movies transcend Christmas movies, and they're great, even though they're you know a Christmas movie for kids. It's not sure. quite that great, but it is true that of the Santas. Kurt Russell's now one of my favorite Santas. Like, mm-hmm. he's, you know, people who've seen Violent Night, he's not David Harborough level of angry Santa, but he is a bit sassy in a way that I think only Kurt Russell can pull off. And I like that about it. But it's still corny. It's just like, fine, you know? Then the sequel tries to, like, deeply expand the universe and i didn't hate it but it's just to the point where it's like i don't need this much fucking santa mythology there's too much going on i don't need all this world building for santa you know it's like the john wick or the santa it's yeah it's the john wick of santa claus movies yeah i kind of like john wick though yeah well i guess it wasn't really a good comparison then liam uh why didn't you just tell your daughter that there was no second santa chronicle movie uh, she's at the point now where she can figure it out. Plus, oh. I had plus I had no idea that it was going to be that bad. I thought like, oh, a second one, cool. You know, I mean, again, I didn't hate it as much as other people. It's it's still charming in its own way, but like for a rewatch, I mean, that's what it is, Doug. As you know, because we do it for this show, I can watch a lot of bad things once. It's the second go that I'm like, oh, but we just watched it like two days ago. What are we doing here? You know. <laughs> Uh, Liam, for the past few years, uh, uh, during the holiday season, we have been watching films from the Weinox Film Festival in Germany, which is a Christmas-themed film festival. I don't know if you recall. Yes. Uh, but this year, we decided to do something a little bit different. Uh, this year, we just decided to each choose a holiday-themed film to discuss on this uh, Christmas, or I should say, this holiday special. I don't want to exclude anybody, and in fact, it would be unfair considering how non-christmas themed some of what we're about to talk about is but um i mean these are very different films that we're going to be talking about today uh, especially the one that i chose which uh not only is it a micro budget horror film uh, like the kind that i used to cover uh very commonly over on the no budget nightmares podcast but it's also a film that's not easy to access making it very a very silly choice for us to talk about 
Well, you know, my choice was based upon two things. One was right. it was the last Christmas movie I watched that I was surprised that I liked, right? Where, I, uh, Well, not the last one, because I liked Violent Night as well. But in recent memory, I thought, well, you know, I watched this thing, and it was actually pretty good. So I'll, I'll choose that, and hopefully it stands up. We'll see what happens. I also chose it because for our shows, we don't often cover relatively modern independent film. We've spent That's some true. time covering older independent film, and we spend a lot of time talking about film that is like very genre-heavy, some of which is mainstream, some of which is utterly obscure. But this idea of like a very mild, kind of inoffensive indie film that like probably isn't artistic enough to get a lot of play in those circles, but is not mainstream enough that like it was playing in a huge theaters. I just thought that would be a fun sort of discussion. And honestly, Doug, I assumed you'd go the same vibe mm-hmm. if I had known mm-hmm. that we were doing <laughs> A total oddity, like we ended up doing for your choice, I would have chosen something utter, you know, totally different. Like there are so many strange, upsetting Christmas movies that I could have chosen that I think would have resonated a little bit better. But in the end, I'm kind of glad because I needed a reason to rewatch this to see if I actually still like it. And um, while I do like it uh, to a good extent, and we'll talk about that, uh, my wife loves it. It is oh huge. interesting, and so we I ended up rewatching it with her and it brought a lot of christmas joy into my life to to for us to enjoy it together so in the end i'm happy with my choice i understand that for our audience this is a, quite a whiplash of an episode but just go with it i think it'll be okay i know there are going to be actually probably more people stoked on your choice than mine but that's fine no absolutely they will not for sure uh because again even though mine is a low budget horror movie it isn't the kind of low budget horror movie that people actually like. It currently on Letterbox, which you know, for those who don't know, that's the social media uh, site for film fans. Every movie that has any sort of availability has at least ratings on it. This movie has three ratings, and one of them are mine. On <laughs> it. I mean, it, nobody has seen this fucking thing. Even its fan page on Facebook only has seventy five likes, and most of those. Are, I mean, look, I don't want. I don't want to get too far into it, but uh, I regret my choice. <laughs> I think when I say they'll prefer it, I meant they'll prefer us talking about it. I'm not suggesting nope. they'll want to watch it. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll see. Anyway, there's another uh, big piece of exciting news, Liam, which is that this is the 150th episode of Cinema Smorgasbord. Uh, an incredible amount of episodes. Now, this I can't remember when we first started this podcast. It was a couple of years ago, um, and uh, I think we've already surpassed. Your beloved Cinepunks podcast in, t- in terms of numbers, Leo? Not quite. Not yet. No? We, ju- we well, just recorded episode 163. So that means okay. we're only 13 episodes away, which knowing us is what? That's three months, maybe? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Watch we'll the fuck out. Up. In fact, yeah. we already recorded a few more ahead of this episode. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're catching up, buddy. <laughs> we have surpassed horror business, though. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're coming for all of the big hitters. Right? We're going to catch up to everybody eventually. Consistency better than quality. That is my mantra. That's what I'm going <laughs> to That's what I'm going to say for the year 2023. Sure. Yeah. Um <laughs> I mean quality is good too. Liam, this is a holiday themed uh episode of Cinema Smorgasbord. And on previous episodes where we covered that Christmas film festival, we've talked about our Christmas traditions a little bit. Uh we talked about a film that was specifically Newfoundland tradition uh, centric on our most recent episode last year. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had a lot of fun hearing about your Christmas memories, but I think 
what I've been hearing recently on the uh, Discord for Cinepunks, which you can join if you want to contact us directly, is that you actually don't really care for Christmas themed films generally. Is that is that or at least the, the heavy hitters? Is that correct? I'm not a yeah, I'm not a big fan. I mean, there's one in particular that is universally loved that I think is vastly overrated. Uh, but in general, yeah, a lot of Christmas movies are kind of a, a of a bummer, or if if they're not straight up depressing, they're at least not something I care about very much. Okay, well, we won't reveal that one that you. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a Christmas story. Is that what it is? Is that what it's called? Yes, a Christmas yeah. story is the yeah. beloved holiday classic that uh, I I don't know if it still plays on TBS for twenty four hours, but uh, it it certainly was marathoned regularly uh during my childhood and uh it's it is a movie that people revisit every year to the point where they just released a brand new sequel to it uh over the last couple of months yeah i think i think the 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 fact that i uh brought out my opinion about christmas story was based on the number of people i saw reviewing the new one who were like it's bad but it reminded me of the old one so therefore it's good and i thought i can't I can't truck with that. That's that's a, that's a bridge too far for me. So, uh, and the original is not bad. I mean, I you know I'll overstate it to piss people off, but in reality, it's not that I think it's bad. I just I don't have the same affection people have for it, where they can watch it every year and it's a part of their Christmas tradition. I just don't find it that charming. It's 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 fine. It's just not something that so I you're feel being a hater, right? That's what you're you're being a hater. I mean, yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I love being a hater. That's awesome. (laughs) You know, uh, but you discussing that online uh, helped prompt my wife to ask me a question, which I thought was a pretty interesting one, which is, are there any Christmas or holiday themed movies that are actually good movies like that, that that stand apart from the fact that they are themed around the holiday? Now, of course, the answer to that is yes, there are. But I wanted to get your thought on that. What is your favorite or maybe some of your favorite holiday-themed movies, but also, what do you think are like maybe the best crafted holiday-themed films? Well, I know it's it's a it's a cliche, but I'll live into that cliche and just sure. say that it's a wonderful life. Now, granted, it's a wonderful life uh, is not the cultural classic we make it out to be. The reason everyone knows it is because it wasn't that popular when it came out, and so it was sold cheap to TV stations. And so when TV stations didn't have any other you know, content or you know, uh, stuff to program, they would just play copies of It's a Wonderful Life. And in fact, the movie is, was at the time, before we started having everything archived on VHS and DVD, it was so fucking stepped on that a lot of people, when they finally saw a good copy of it, were really surprised because the, the copies of the TV stations would play were terrible, just awful. Like, the, it, it looked like crap, you know? Uh, and so this affection that everyone has for it really is a, is a more recent, more modern thing. But, you know, I, I force myself to sit through it out of a sense of obligation. And it's, ac- <laughs> and it's actually pretty good, you know? I, I think the assumption I had is, like, everyone loves this Christmas movie. It must be bad. And uh, no, it's a good movie. I think it's good. I think it actually, uh, you know, has some stuff that is worth thinking about and whatever, whatever. I, I won't go on forever about It's a Wonderful Life because it's such an obvious choice. Um, yeah. It, you know what? Honestly, that was one of the ones that I brought up when my wife yeah. said that. Yeah. You know, Frank Capra, it's... a wonderful director, great cast, very touching, very. I mean, I would have figured that you would think it was a little corny and maybe just because. It is a little it, bit. My but... wife. 
My wife doesn't like it that much because if she brings it up, I have to do my Jimmy Stewart impression there. Yeah, oh that's a God that's yeah that that makes me really want to watch it. How about if I lash you with the oh, movie? I hate you there. so much. I just what? want you and I'll bring it down to wrap ex- it into expire. Give, give it I would like you to expire what? actually. Yeah, in fact, there's another Christmas classic, uh, Shop Around the Corner, uh, which is another movie I really like. That also it stars Mr. Okay, Jimmy Stop. Shore. Can you not do this? <laughs> I will also say that some of the goofier Christmas movies that are genre movies are actually very good. So, like, um, I, a friend the other day was saying how uh, not only is Black Christmas one of their favorite horror movies. It's, it's one a good of, movie. It's one of their favorite movies of all time. Just it's in the list. And I'm not offended at that. I think that's a great movie. Well, it must be embarrassing for you because it's directed by the same person who directed A Christmas Story. Well, that's what that's always my joke. I think that's part of the reason is that, like... I think Black Christmas is so superior to a Christmas story that I'm always like, oh, man, you, you already nailed Christmas with one movie. You didn't have to go after it again. Um, it's because Black Christmas is so much more Canadian, right? Yeah, that's, that's true. You, you love I do Canada. love Canadian stuff here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then I also like um, – so this – it has a bunch of different names, but I think one of the names is Dow Code Santa Claus. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, but I forget the, the other The Home names. Alone movie. Yeah, the, the movie that is clearly related but not the same at all as Home Alone. Uh, I love that. I actually think that's a good – that's not just a fun Christmas horror. It's actually, I think, very good. Uh, and then the other ones I think are pretty good. I, I, I enjoy them enough that they don't have to be amazing movies. Like Christmas Evil maybe isn't a perfect work of art, but I really like it. I really think it's well executed, you know. So, um, you know, as far as just traditional Christmas movies, I actually like probably Muppet Christmas Carol is my favorite. Sure. Uh, it's I mean, the... inferior to the classic Muppet Family Christmas, but still. Well, but movie. this is the difference, right? Muppet Family Christmas <laughs> and Emmett Otter's Jug Time Christmas, whatever the fuck it is. I always get the title yeah, wrong, yeah. that one. Uh, <laughs> those feel like TV specials. They're very fun, yeah. and I love them. Mm-hmm. They are TV specials. The thing about A Christmas Carol that I love and I hate is that it's so much more of a movie. I would even suggest, and this is also offensive, uh, it's more of a movie than the other Muppet movies, honestly. And and and, mm. and that's part of my, as much as I love it, my frustration with it, because it lacks some of the anarchy of the first three Muppet films, right? Those three right. movies are a little bit more chaotic. And I think that uh, Muppet Christmas Carol is the first Disney production. It's the first production without Jim Henson. And I think in order to do a Christmas Carol, they needed it to be more professional. But sure. it it lacks some of the sense of pure anarchy that those other movies do. Yeah. And then and after that, certain. no other Muppet thing. Even some of them, like, you know, Muppet Treasure Island is fine, or Muppets from Space is fine. But, like, they don't have that spirit that those early movies do. And I really think the tone was shifted with a Muppet Christmas Carol. Now, again, I love how professional it is. I'm glad that they did something that to me is iconic and probably will in some sense be timeless. As long as people care about Christmas, that movie will make sense. But I do think it marks a turning of the corner that I now kind of regret a little bit, you know, you know what else that movie is missing? What? Mr. Jimmy Stewart. I hate well, you so could probably much. fit himself in there. Why? With Mr. Kermit. Okay. <clears throat> uh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. Actually, it, it's a it, it's a good point. I don't, I don't think I've loved any Muppet-themed movie that came out after Muppet's Christmas Carol. Pretty much killed the franchise, I would say, Liam. I mean, I don't think it did it, but it was the beginning. It was certainly it's was. Dead. It certainly was the beginning of a solidified relationship, which, you know, I mean... 
I, I'm no Frank Oz, uh, but I do think his insights, though extreme, into the difficulty of working with Disney for Jim Henson, sure, um, are are insightful, even if they're obviously come out of a sense of resentment. So I wouldn't blame them for for uh, Jim Henson's passing the way he does, but I would say that clearly it's a fraught relationship that hasn't uh, quite worked out. Like Christmas Carol was a great collaboration, and I think it worked out for the better, but everything after that is just less and less. And again, not that they're all bad. Some of even the later show stuff is fine, like Prince interacting with Muppets, fucking great. But like the quality level has descended and descended until modern Muppet stuff is fine, but it lacks, it lacks the heart. And I understand partly why, because some of the heart of early Muppets is melancholy. Those are some sad fucking, I mean, Emmett Otter is a downer. That shit's a fucking downer. But like, that's part of what the Muppets were, was a willingness to be utterly crazy and also a bit of a bummer, you know? And, uh, and they never went back there. Uh, for the entirety after Christmas Carol, no other Muppet project has really been willing to embrace fully, in my mind, the both the anarchy and the melancholy of, of the original Muppets. So. Is that your favorite adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? I haven't watched Scrooge yet. Is that the musical with Albert Finney? I think it's called yeah. Scrooge. I've mm. been told by many older film critics that that's the best Christmas Carol, and um, I don't know. I haven't watched it yet. I'm willing to. I just haven't made the time yet. Of the ones I've seen, yes, it's my favorite. Uh, Christmas Carol's my, or uh, Muppet Christmas Carol's my favorite adaptation. No disrespect to some of the other ones that I think are fine, um, and I know a lot of people love Scrooge, though I think like that's it's so different that it's not even really worth comparing honestly coming in 2025 to the <laughs> praising Kane podcast <laughs> yeah i'm sure i'm sure i mean i do love carol Kane as the is she present or is she past i think she's present i think she is present because she hits buster poindexter is past is past i think yeah and she's present because she hits him with the with the toaster and that's the yeah, present that's... he he gives, gives the man <laughs> So lots of great holiday-themed movies. Any more that you want to bring up, Liam, before we take our first break? I mean, there's always ones that I forget. As much as I talk shit on holiday movies, I'm sure there's one. And let's be clear. We're talking about movies about the holidays. Mm-hmm. There are lots of movies that occur during Christmas that are awesome but are not Christmas movies. Like, people keep bringing up Brazil, which occurs <laughs> during Christmas. But it's not about Christmas. Like, let's not pretend that it's about Christmas. And that's fine. I got nothing against movies that occur on Christmas but aren't about Christmas. But when it comes Twelve to Twelve Monkeys has a segment that takes place during Christmas, yeah, too. Yeah. Terry Gilliam loves Christmas, I guess. I guess. But when it comes to movies that are about Christmas, I always talk shit and I say they're bad. I'm sure there's some outlier that I'm forgetting that someone could bring up and I'd be like, oh, right. Yeah, that is pretty good, actually. But for the most part, I think movies about Christmas are fine. They're just not great. You know, like, yeah, it's just not my favorite genre, per se. Well, now that you've talked about how terrible the movies are about holidays, let's talk about two of them, Liam. Sounds good. <laughs> We're going to take a break. When we return... We're going to talk about the film that Liam has chosen for our holiday special, 2019's Feast of the Seven Fishes, a movie outside of you telling me about it, Liam, I had not heard of whatsoever. Oh, Didn't wow. seem to have okay. much profile. Yeah, this was a, a complete uh, uh, mystery to me. Was it a good mystery? Like those Knives Out movies? <laughs> 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 or was it a bad mystery? I guess we'll find out. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. <laughs> 
just don't feel the same. You know, those chicks that uh, went away to college, the ones we never get to see, well, they're gonna be coming out tonight. And they're gonna be horny for the holidays. That old Christmas magic, huh? First she jingles the bells, then it's away to the manger, and then it's joy to the world, Like baby. a Bing Crosby Christmas special. by a bunch of uneducated townies, no. Um, thank you. I didn't mean you. No, well, that's a relief, because I hate to be thought of as uneducated. Beth Claremont, Tony Oliverio. Hi. Hi. Tony, remember this song? Uh-huh. Mm. There it is. Angelo's your best friend? Cousin. If he wasn't, there's no way I'd hang out with him. Oh! Frankie. You don't knock? A slice-of-life story that follows a large Italian family on Christmas Eve as they prepare for the traditional feast of the seven fishes, reminisce about the past, and seek love in the future. It's 2019's <laughs> Feast of the Seven Fishes, uh, directed by Robert Tinnell, uh, who, by the way, people might know not just as a film director and producer, but as a writer of graphic novels, comic art, let's say, uh, uh, graphic narrative fiction, however you want to think of it. Um, I've heard of him primarily, actually, before I saw this movie, as that. Uh, he wrote uh, graphic novels like Flesh and Blood, The Living and the Dead, The Black Forest, The Wicked West, uh, and the Eisner Award nominee uh, that this was based off of, Feast of the Seven fishes now doug i saw this movie not really when it came out but around when it came out and i knew that this guy wrote graphic novels did not know this was based off a graphic novel he wrote which is really weird right like i knew that that was his primary medium but it never made the connection that i could have read this thing which you know i'm assuming it's pretty similar but it's just funny that that i never made that connection i had heard his name before what i didn't know that you have filled me in as you often do is that he directed (laughs) other movies frankenstein and me the kids of the round table uh he was a producer on black fork the hunted and surf nazis must die yeah the original surf nazis must die I didn't know any of that. So as usual, <laughs> you're informing me because I'm ignorant. Um, apparently, partially, this was illustrated by Ed Pisker, who people yeah. know from Cartoonist Kayfabe or obviously from Hip Hop Family Tree and a bunch of other stuff. Right. I love that. I love Ed Pisker. Uh, I love his. I love Cartoonist Kayfabe. I love Hip Hop Family Tree. So I'm now I need to find this comic, basically. Which, uh, to be clear, it was serialized, right? It wasn't to put out as a novel. Yeah, it was a comic strip, right? yeah, like yeah, a yeah, three-panel yeah. comic strip that was then collected together. I'm not sure where it first appeared, and I'm, I'm sorry for listeners for not having more information about this, but uh, or I, I, so we can't speak to how, how kind of closely the film resembles the comic uh, initially, but yeah, I'm very curious about it at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited to check it out, and I, I think Ed Pisker's Art, while very sort of unique in the comic book space, is one that I appreciate for what it is, and so I'm stoked to check it out. Uh, when it comes to the movie, Doug, the cast includes uh, Skylar Gazondo, which people might know, who people might know, sorry, from um, The Righteous Gemstones, uh, and I'm sure other, th- what else has he been in? You, you mentioned some stuff. Yeah, Santa Clarita Diet. Ah, uh, yes, in. right, 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 right. Uh, he was recently in a Licorice Pizza as well. Yes, um, yes, Yeah, yes, I yes. mean, you People will recognize him. I think he was actually a, a child star as well, but I didn't see any of his stuff when he was a kid. I have to say, I mean, I just to throw it out there, I think he's an amazing comic actor. He really is something special. I think he was in one of the Wet Hot American Summer Seasons as well. I think TV that's true. Version. I think that's true, yeah. Um, also starring Madison Eisman, Addison Timlin, Josh Hellman, Joe Pantoliano. Paul, Joey Pants. Joey Pants. Uh, Paul Ben Victor, Ray Abruzzo, Andrew Schultz, Lynn Cohen, Jessica Darrow. Uh, 
just a fun, in my mind, a fun cast, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, in many countries, including Canada, this film was not titled Feast of the Seven Fishes, but A Christmas Feast, a name that screams shitty Hallmark movie you should avoid. Yeah. Right? Like, absolutely. it just feels like such a bad call, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and one of the things I want to highlight about this movie, which we'll get more into the details of, is how interestingly specific this movie is. This is a movie about a very Italian community in the mountainous areas of West Virginia, the coal country, basically. And um, when it comes to film uh, as a uh, representative of communities, we haven't seen a lot of Italian coal family communities, right? Like this is not a common trope in American media, I would say, of any kind, uh, and especially one in which we're watching a West Virginia family whose closest city is Pittsburgh, and so they have Pittsburgh slang as part of their deal, right? Like, there's something very unique about this community, and I think that's interesting. Um, But before we get into some of those details, as well as the portrayal and how well we relate to these characters and all that sort of stuff, I just want to get a general feeling from you, Doug. You didn't know about this movie before I suggested it. You weren't familiar with it at all. What did you think, having watched it now? Yeah, not only not familiar with it, but not familiar really with a lot of the traditions that it's putting on display. Sure. I thought in some way this was, you were suggesting it as kind of a counterpoint to the movie I recommended uh, last Christmas, which was very Newfoundland specific, that was talking a little bit about, about the traditions back in Newfoundland where I grew up. And not that this was supposed to represent your own traditions, but certainly closer to the area in which which you were raised. Um and I liked it a lot. I watched it with uh, my wife, um, who doesn't usually watch many of the movies that we cover on the Cinema Smorgasbord podcast. But she was certainly interested in this one, specifically because she spent a lot of time around the area in which this movie takes place, which is uh, – this is West Virginia in this case. But she spent a lot of time in Pittsburgh. Uh, and I was very charmed by it and also intrigued at the same time. I will say that the details of the meal – and all the traditions around it are the thing that I found the most interesting. The sure. sort of coming of age, slice of life stuff. Some of that was good as well because I liked the cast and I liked their interactions. Uh, but it didn't always play as well for me. The other thing I don't think we've mentioned yet is that this is a period piece. This takes place in yes. 1983, which is a little bit before – like I grew up in the 80s, but I would have been too you know too young around this time period. I will say that though I think it does a good job of trying to – recreate the feeling of that era obviously it's something that the director knew very well uh since he you know he wrote about it this is very kind of uh autobiographically you can tell when you're watching it it didn't always look like 1983 to me it did you know the hairstyle sometimes it didn't always like the clothing they do a good job but i'm not sure it's always consistently really brings to mind that era um and but but i mean i'm willing to hear arguments to the contrary but no i liked it very much it, there are certain elements of the plot, particularly with the the jealous skiing boyfriend who comes in in the third act, and um, you know he's such an obvious piece of shit, garbage person to, that it it made it kind of feel like a Hallmark movie just for a second. When outside of that, it felt like it had so much texture and detail to these characters. But overall, yeah, I really I really dug it. It is a movie that I think deserves a little bit more exposure and and profile. Um, and I I'd like to think that people who are a little more intimately knowledgeable about this, uh, you know, Italian uh, families and this particular history of this meal that they would really get something out of this and and probably get a lot of nostalgia out of it as well. Yeah, I I think I I have to agree with you, Doug. I do want to say that uh, on this viewing, some of that 
stuff that maybe gave you pause, I was more aware of. Whereas the first time I saw it, I was just charmed, I think, by some of the comedic performances, by the specificity of this community, which I don't think is on screen a lot, and mm-hmm. by uh, just the idea of the aspirational aspect of the movie. You know, like I, I kind of felt like I understand being someone who dreams of something and maybe assumes that it's outside of your reach, you know? There's also something, as you sort of suggested, there's something both familiar and alienating to me about this in that, uh, and and, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just so people understand, like, I grew up in Philly, which is, like, the same kind of area, but also very different. Uh, Sure. The parts of it that felt very familiar is I've driven through, I mean, this is filmed in West Virginia. It's set in West Virginia. Anyone familiar with small towns in Pennsylvania will think this is set in Pennsylvania. It's the community, <laughs> the community of West Virginia that's this close to PA. There's a lot of common uh, 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 DNA, and I'm sure this is true in other states, uh, especially states that have communities that are centered around coal. Like this felt like a coal town anywhere that I've been to uh, throughout the Pennsylvania uh, region. I've been a couple times to West Virginia. I'm just less familiar with it, you know. Uh, So all of that felt very familiar. But familiar in a way, Doug, that's slightly alienating because that's not where I'm from. Right. So I've sure. I've seen it. I've grown up with it. But it's always been places that I passed through or I visited mm-hmm. like friends of my mom might have relatives who lived in those places. And when I went to their houses, it was very weird for me and alienating. So it was like a familiar alienation, which was interesting. Um, and also this idea, like on one hand, I was familiar with the Feast of the Seven Fishes partly from living in South Philly, which is a very Italian community. And uh, people would do that there. But even growing up. A lot of my Italian friends did not do this sort of stuff. They were very uh, much more, uh, let's say, Americanized. You know, at one point, sure. at one point, the the they refer to uh, this uh, upper class girl that he becomes friends with as an American. You know, she's she's uh, she's American, which is so weird to hear <laughs> from people who fought in World War II for America. But that's how they think of her: that she's so Anglo. She's you know whatever. But I think a lot of the <laughs> Italian Americans I grew up with were also super American, but not all of them. And I definitely did know people who said they did things like Feast of the Seven Fishes around Christmas. But the thing is, Doug, I grew up, and this is funny since you constantly make fun of me for being the religious one, quote unquote. Uh-huh. I actually grew up in such a intensely secular, anti-religion household. I had no idea about half the shit that even normal, like Americanized people do around Christmas, let alone specific ethnic celebrations that people had. I, and it, when I, I just thought, like your punk attitude was so strong when you were a kid that you had to rebel against the, yes. the secularness. Yes, one hundred percent. When I first became a Christian, part of it was to piss my mom off. I'm not even joking. <laughs> I, I didn't know that at the time, but I think that's clear now. That wasn't the only motivation, but it was, I think, a small part of it. Uh, all that to say, this, on one hand, I, it felt a little familiar, but in a way that also felt alienating. I guess it would sure. be like if you saw a movie that was set in Canada in a community that was near but wasn't part of Newfoundland, and they were just talking about how weird it was over you know what I'm saying. It, it it feels like a community. Like literally, she's like refers to her boyfriend as Philadelphia money, and I thought, right. what the fuck? And I'm like, oh wait, no, that's true. There are very rich people in Philly, but like that's just not the Philly I know. So it was so weird to hear it said with such fucking disdain that I was like, wait, what the fuck? But uh, but you know whatever. Anyways, I'm getting too much in the weeds. I, I, while all those details are very charming, I do think it does rely a little bit on. 
not just the love story aspect, which is at its essence pretty corny, but also the way that they explore the class difference. I was honestly more interested in their ethnic differences in the sense that she's from this very waspy family that probably doesn't know any of their traditions from the quote-unquote old country. And he's from a community that's much more embedded in the traditions that they brought with them from where they're from. Mm. That was more interesting to me than just the idea that he's poor and she's not. And that isn't usually the case. Usually, I think class is a very interesting subject matter. I just think the film is like not as interested in that as they could be. And 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 the, to the extent that they are interested in it, they're only interested in it in exploring the ways that people who grow up poor sometimes limit their possibilities because they assume that to have uh, to have dreams that go beyond their community is like a bad look. It's like it shows that you think you're better than other people. And the part where uh, his grandfather explains to him, we didn't do all this shit so you couldn't have a better future. Like that was the whole point was for you to do something else. You know, we made the store so we wouldn't have to work in the mines anymore, which I did love them talking about that because coal mining is, is, is awful thing. But, uh, but like, that was it. The only exploration really of the class dynamics is just reminding him that he doesn't have to stay where he is, which honestly, as much as I appreciate it, it's also a little hostile towards that same culture. You know what I mean? Like a little bit like you got to get the fuck out of here, you know? And <laughs> that kind of was frustrating to me. Even the character who I think is otherwise pretty charming of the local sort of philosopher king, you know, this guy who is very embedded in the community, but also is super smart and thus maybe doesn't fit in. It's right. a little condescending, honestly. And so, like, I'm glad the movie didn't explore that stuff too much because I kind of feel like it's a situation where this guy might be a little too close to the narrative to see the ways where maybe he's being a little condescending as I well was as celebrating that, exact that same thing. Of course, escaping from the community would be seen as the good thing in this movie since this guy obviously, obviously did that thing, right? Yeah. And went on to maybe not art school, but certainly became a filmmaker, you know, in the early 90s. Yeah, I could see that. Well, that and, is something and escaping that, the, a community that is obviously dying because coal communities all over the, those states are still dying into the sure. 2022. Yeah. Uh, that's fine in and of itself, but there's no acknowledgement that that's – doesn't matter that those people are still interesting, vibrant folks who just are being denied the sorts of economic opportunities that would allow them to have a more expansive view of life. It's not, and, and I'm not saying it needs to go that deep. I'm saying I'm glad it didn't explore those themes more because it really felt like he couldn't handle those themes as a writer. It's outside of his purview, it felt to me. I will say that one other thing that stuck out to me in a kind of a negative way, and maybe this did reflect reality, uh, and maybe this is taken right from his real life, but the fact that his Italian, you know, family are also kind of gangsters and have connections with the criminal underworld is something that they it's like they don't focus too heavily on this, though I think one of the letterbox reviews for this suggests that it should be part of the Sopranos extended universe because <laughs> it shares some of the cast members. <laughs> but just the you know, just the idea that the Joey Pants character he he kind of mentions offhandedly that he's done work in other places that's supposed to be connected to the criminal world. And it's just like, I mean, I get it. That's probably a reality that a lot of people uh, experience to one extent or another. But it felt a little pandering when I when I watched this movie. As a uh, Philadelphian, it did not feel pandering. It felt underexplored. Um, 
I mean, it's to me, it works because it's just him. And no one else in the family has criminal connections. It's just Uncle. It's just Uncle. What is his name? Uncle Frankie. And the Uncle fact Frank. that. Though I have to say that Johnny, the Paul Ben Victor character, he is like the most Italian looking guy that yes. I've ever seen in my entire yes. life. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But the idea that like everyone else had real jobs, but Frankie did something else. And now everyone is afraid of Frankie because he did something else. <laughs> that all felt real to me, Doug. And maybe, I mean, here's the deal. I, you're right. It is a stereotype that many Italian Americans are connected to some form of organized crime. I agree with that. Now, does that mean that growing up, I didn't know anyone who was connected to organized crime? No, Doug. I knew people who were connected. I still know people that have connections to organized crime. I know people whose parents have and uncles and family, even if they seem like a normal person. Uh, I know. I mean, I had friends who. Uh, had a had a you know they had the nerdiest thing ever, Doug. They played magic, right? And one day, a sure. gentleman came into the shop where they play magic and was like, "Oh, this is like a cool card game. I want to play." And they taught him how to play, and they hung out with this dude. And uh, bada bing, bada boom. After being friends with this guy for three years, they finally were like, "Look, there's no way you can afford this house working at a pizza shop." And his little response, Doug, was, "Come on, you guys are from New Jersey. You know what's going on. I don't need to say it." And they said, "Okay." And that's it. That was the end of the conversation. They never brought it up again. And uh, and that's a and that thing. man was Whitey Bulger. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to say a stereotype is real because it's not. There are Italian Americans all over the world who have no connection uh, to anything like crime. But seeing it and the fact that they made it a part of the plot, but they didn't play it too hard. It didn't feel weird to me because that felt like something I knew. Even if I mean, again, we're also assuming Doug. All we know is that this guy is a scary man who did things he doesn't want to talk about. That doesn't mean he was in the mafia. Lots of people do crime. He might have just done crime on his own. We have no clue. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I mean, I have friends now, Doug, who I would say if someone was mad at them, trust me, you ought to let this thing go. You know, and that doesn't mean that they're in organized crime. It just means I have friends who I think, uh, you know, you, you just don't want to be on the wrong side of. And so, like, that just feels like life to me. And maybe that's just not your experience, but it is mine. So I didn't, <laughs> yeah, I didn't... It certainly is not a lot of Newfoundland gangsters. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I do agree. I think that um, some people who think that's stupid or just silly will feel weird about it because it is kind of played for laughs at one point and maybe it's not something to laugh about uh but for me it just felt uh let's put it this way if it wasn't in there i wouldn't miss it so i don't want to get like Mm. precious about it but i don't it did at no point was i like oh this is so dumb i just thought oh okay yeah that makes sense that's fine like it just felt whatever to me the same way that like the fact that uh uh his best friend in the world is actually a gross misogynist dude uh i I say misogynist i'm exaggerating but he's he's certainly not a feminist that is a bit of a stereotype of a gentleman living in this part of the world in in the 1980s on the other hand felt realistic so i kind of let it fly either way (laughs) not not his best friend his cousin remember he would never hang out with them well but that's what's (laughs) but that's what's so weird right he doesn't have any other friends so it's like it's just his cousin but he doesn't hang out with anyone else you know I like the idea that the Skylar Gisando part, Tony, the lead in this, he's basically playing the same sort of character he's played in a lot of different things that I've seen him in. Except in this case, in those other movies, he's usually portrayed as like an outsider or a nerd for being like that. But in this movie, everyone recognizes that because of his kind heart and his artistic tendencies and his ability to communicate, that women love him. That he's like very popular with women. That he's seen as kind of a cool guy because of it. It's just that feels a little bit more 
true to life. I mean, you know, a young, handsome, artistic, intelligent guy should do well in a community like this. But usually they're portrayed as outsiders. Yeah. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting, Liam, was that you you don't like a Christmas story which has a similar kind of throwback nostalgia view to this movie. Right. Sure. I mean, not in the same sort of tone necessarily, but, you know, it is a movie about a person, you know, ostensibly talking about their own childhood or and their coming of age around Christmas. But this movie, obviously, you know, the characters are older. It's a little bit more mature. It's 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 less comic. I mean, there's a lot of dramatic elements to this movie as well. But I just want to get a sense, like, what is it about this movie that drives you to it? Or, I mean, you mentioned also, I, I can't remember if it was on the break or not, that your wife really responds to it as loves well. What it, she loves it. Um, I think we both think, and this will be weird for people for whom it doesn't work, um, I think it's pretty funny, actually. Mm-hmm. I found it, uh, again, not as funny as, say, a comedy classic like Hot Rod, but uh, but definitely funny, which I, I think you... The can, bellwether. <laughs> yeah, for me, it really is. Um, I, think you, I think you could make a movie like this that was half as funny to me as this one is because it's it's not about the comedy as much as it is about the story. So the fact that it's funny, I think, is a nice addition. Um, I also, again, the aspirational thing, but I also like that, though, I think Tony is a little too squeaky clean as a character on his yeah. surface. Mm-hmm. So having... The ex, though problematic in some ways, and I think plays into some of my concerns about the patriarchal nature of the movie, it does point to him having a past that was less endearing and him being fully aware of it. That, like, actually, I wasn't the best dude for a while, and now I'm trying to be better. And while that might come across as condescending, too, I don't mean it to be. I just want to make a good decision here. And that part of it, I thought, was a a good choice because it does show us that he isn't perfect, even though everyone wants to treat him like he's perfect, right? Um, And it it sort of puts into context, I think, what is the, the part of his narrative of leaving, which, again, I still find very compelling, though I have concerns about it, that I think is sort of wounded is the guilt he feels. And I actually think that makes sense because even if I want to defend the community he is trying to leave, I don't think that means he shouldn't leave. And I don't think it means he should feel this guilt. I think the guilt is one of the unhealthy aspects of being from a specific poor community that you worry will maybe crumble without you. Because A, it's not going to crumble without you. You need to deflate your ego a little bit. But B, um, you, you owe them nothing more than to pursue who you are. And, um, I, you know, do I think this movie would make actually a much bigger impact if the person who wrote it was gay and it was about them also escaping because they were discovering something about their identity that would be more painful? Sure, but that would also be a cliche, right? Like, I kind of mm-hmm. like that the biggest issue here is something that he could let go. People let go of their aesthetic dreams all the time. That's a common thing. It's 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 a for many people it's a demand. Once you become an adult, you must stop trying to be creative in every way because yeah, yeah. adults don't mm-hmm. do that. And uh, the fact that he doesn't make that decision, I think, is an interesting part of the narrative. Uh, but I I want to go back to something, Doug. I think you're right, though, that as much as there is a compelling narrative to this that I want to talk about, too, this is still basically a slice of life movie. It's very much just about a Christmas in this community. They inject a certain amount of drama, but it's as much about the texture of that community as it is about the drama. And I wanted to ask you, like, 
is this a kind of movie that you enjoy, this slice-of-life cinema? Because I very much think that the people I've interacted with who don't like this movie, that's the part they find really frustrating or boring. They don't like film that really boils down to a picture of a community at a given time. I mean, that is probably the thing I like most about it. Mostly, I kind of transpose my own childhood onto it, right? I, even though I didn't grow up in a similar place geographically, you know, I grew up in a small town where people walked everywhere and everyone knew each other. And, you know, that you would go to a bar and it, 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 it very similar looking bars to the bars that are in this movie. Oh, and yes. how people interact I thought the same. Very, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it has a very similar feeling. And also the closeness of the family was something that that reflected my reality. And honestly, even the leaving that area felt very similar to my own feelings around leaving, where you had that kind of close family that, you know, that support system is not going to be there wherever you go next. And that is one of the big risks of leaving. Um, So, yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of it was something I related to, but also... The detail is what makes it, right? I mean, this movie is yes. really isn't anything without the detail of that slice of life, without that small town. And, you know, the fact that his, his, I like that his, it doesn't have a lot of artificial drama with his family. You yes. know, it's, it, they're, they're, they're shooting the shit and they're knocking at each other for not soaking the fish long enough and all that sort of thing. But they don't create a lot of, you know, it, it, the, the trailer made it seem like that when, Beth was invited to this Feast of the Seven Fishes that this family were just going to be wild and crazy and they're going to be like sniping at it. It's like, no, they're just like a regular family, right? They're just, they're they're not getting in fist fights and stuff like that. The drama actually happens outside of that. Uh, so no, I liked all that. The thing I didn't as much like was how that Katie character, which is Tony's ex, is integrated into the story. Some of it doesn't feel, it. the fact that he's trying to kind of save her is field field felt a little strange to me. It's just to explain to, to listeners who haven't seen the movie, Katie is his ex. We find out that she has started stripping and he runs over, like drives over to the strip club and basically pulls her out of there. And the suggestion is that she was only doing it to get his attention in the first place. She's really hung up on him. And like, like seriously. And that is one of the things the movie has to kind of help her get over um, and some of that, some of it feels realistic, while other bits feel, I think it slides into the misogyny that you were suggesting earlier. Yeah, I mean, that's my issue. And I, I put it on our outline as uh, gender politics of coal country, West Virginia in the 80s. Like, on one hand, I want to allow for the idea that this probably is realistic to how people right. thought about gender and sexuality in this part of the world in 1983. On the other hand, in 2019 or 2022, um, it feels super patriarchal. And this is supposed to be our charming hero. And certainly this act that he does charms the pants off this other girl that he likes, this rich privileged girl that this is what begins her infatuation with him is his willingness to do this maybe not begins but continues um and i find it kind of alienating i kind of feel like he is in some sense uh talking down to this girl though i get the underlying feeling i i identify with his general feeling of it would be very fun for us to have meaningless sex because Doug I've made that decision before with people who I shouldn't have <laughs> that it was just like eh, this would be easy though that that I get that so the idea that he's trying to avoid that because it feels like not a kind decision I think that makes sense but they expand that to like 
if you're going to show up and fight the owner of the strip club for her honor, of course she's going to still have feel. You know what I mean? Like at some right. point, you're not helping yourself if your goal is to help her move on. Let her make the bad decision. Like I don't. And again, that's not to say that stripping. I, I think there's also just the thing we want to say as as uh, people in 2022 who are sex work is real work. Yeah, it's real work. You could be a stripper. That's great. What the fuck is the problem here? Like the very idea that she's making a bad decision. Now, I get the feeling having uh, seen this guy who's the owner of the strip club portrayed on on screen, you know, maybe he's the bad decision to some extent. Like that guy sucks balls. (laughs) But, you know, they're not clear enough about what is at stake here. It almost feels like simply by taking her clothes off, she's doing something completely regrettable, you know, and I think that that is utterly unfair i think everyone i know should get naked that'd be great like i just think this whole and, idea... and then she almost fucks his younger brother which is also portrayed as well, i mean control. that one probably is a bad decision right but even <laughs> but, but the idea that she would be willing to go that far just to hurt him and then although i will say the joke that the brother's like i know you're just doing this to hurt my brother but i'm totally okay with that <laughs> i actually think that's accurate to many teenage boys so i wasn't too bummed on that but i think as a plot line there's too much effort i think to well, again, I don't think the author has enough distance from this thing, which he probably should because he's a grown adult now, uh, to right. really see Katie's humanity fully. I think it ends in a way that's supposed to help us see that Katie is a full person, but the way that she's treated throughout the story, it feels like she really functions for the main character, Tony, more than as an actual fully realized character. And I think that's just a flaw of this being, not that this literally happened to him, but in some sense, I, it feels like this is autobiographical. So if it is more autobiographical uh, than not, he clearly doesn't have enough distance from this narrative to really tell this part of it well. I think it's not handled uh, I mean, as well. Also, the idea that he sees himself as the Tony character who is so you know beloved right. by women and always right. has the right thing to right. say. I mean, it's a little bit corny. This is I, mean, I would like nothing. it more if he was like, I'm the sad, smart guy who never left the yes. town. Juke. That would yeah, be much right. more endearing because that character is actually the same as Tony in many ways, but it's just mm-hmm. less respected. It gets less cool stuff. Also, by the way, in my mind, uh, coded autistic. That's the other part of that performance. I mean, I certainly saw that too. I I, yeah. I I feel always a little awkward suggesting characters in movies may be autistic, but I mean, I think that there's I, I, well, a that's why I that, that's why I say coded, right? I think a lot of characters aren't meant to be autistic, but the people who write them borrow from people that remind them of what they want to do, and in what they use as signifiers of those personalities, it's hard not to see them as coded like. Uh, how many people know autistic people to be. And so I'm not saying any character is, they're a character, but often writers take things that autistic people rightly say, hey, that's like me. You know, like it's it's a way to make someone seem quirky. And this guy definitely gives off that vibe. And I think some viewers who are autistic would see that and identify and feel good. And some viewers who are autistic would say, are artistic, autistic would say, hey, that's fucked up actually. <laughs> you know, like I think it's yeah. it's, a, it's a line you walk as a writer, uh, even if you are an autistic writer, is to say, how are people going to react to this character? Am I using these traits in a way that is a caricature, right? That is like exploiting those traits for 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 laughs, for for uh, to 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 look down on this person, and I don't think that only happens with holistic, uh, i.e., not autistic uh, or or neurotypical writers. I think there are even writers who are autistic who exaggerate certain things and don't realize that that's going to be absorbed by the audience as if you're mocking that character. And I don't think that is helpful, you know. So 
I, I do think this is something that we do when thinking about our childhood, that if there was someone who was, you know, in our social circle, who was awkward or didn't have strong social skills that, you know, you kind of codify in your brain that they were autistic thinking back and they may very well have been, but it's just, you know, that, it's why I was a little careful with it, but he does those kind of ticks in the film uh, right. where he's like scrunches up his face and things like that. I mean, I think it's clear what they're at least trying to portray. I, I wanted just to mention, even though again, it's apropos of nothing is that the actress who played Katie Addison Timlin, Liam, she's married to Jeremy Allen White, the lead of The Bear, the uh, popular television series. I did not know that, but I, yeah. it's now that you say that, I'm like, that is a hot couple. I'm just putting that yeah. out there. Yeah, pretty hot couple. He looks like Willy Wonka, and she looks like a hot blonde. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you say that, but I think he is – He's well, we're not going to get into the, the phenomena of, uh, of uh, the, the current crop of – of of attractive men who look sexy attractive. young studs. Well, I, well, it's too. It's <laughs> He's going to be playing Carrie Von Erich in the new uh, wrestling. Oh movie, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, let's let's get back to something else I wanted to talk about, which I think is related <laughs> to this. How did you feel about the performances here? Because we have a variety of actors, both young people who I didn't necessarily recognize, and then of course uh cameos i guess or not really cameos they're big performances but actors who we know from other projects what did you sure. think of the performances and do you did you feel like this was stunt casting or did it all kind of work for you no it all worked i mean it it is funny to see like a family a pretty light comedy to a certain extent which stars these three actors that probably have done a bunch of like mob movies, right? And we know Joey Pants has certainly, and Paul Ben Victor. Like I said, he looks like the guy, like like he stepped right out of The Godfather. But the way that they interact feels very lived in, very real, and it really feels like a family. I wish they gave Tony's parents a little bit more. I agree. Um, we don't really feel anything from them outside of a kind of a nice moment where, like at the end of the day, they're they're sitting together and laying together. It shows that they actually are a strong unit, but. Like and he, and his younger brother, I think, is maybe the weakest performance in the movie. Movie, um, but I mean, it doesn't really matter that much. I think everyone's really good. I mean, it really does focus on the younger characters going out there and and you know, <laughs> having a having doing what you do in a small town, driving around, going to bars, just hanging out. They don't really do anything that you would be pro- seen as fun necessarily. But it's just they just go to restaurants and go to bars, and that's all there is to do in a small place like that. But no, I think the performances are really good. But the fact is, the movie lives or dies by how much you like Skylar Gisondo as Tony. I mean, it's 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 all him. So if if that character doesn't work for you, then the movie's not going to work for you. I agree. I think a lot is riding on him. I think he does a fine job. And like I said, I do think there's a little bit of layer to the character. I think the movie would be better if there was more. But And this is sort of one of the things I wanted to put out there. Do you think, Doug, I am more forgiving of this movie because it's a Christmas movie? And in my mind, the bar for Christmas movies is so fucking low that just by not being utterly corny and embarrassing i'm giving this movie too much of a pass when it's really just kind of like a twee indie movie that happens to have that happens to occur during christmas the thing is maybe but this movie could just as easily be around thanksgiving or Agreed. any other gathering or easter or something like that right it really is it's about a family gathering and the interactions of the personalities in those families so even though a lot of christmas movies tend to do that sort of thing as well it isn't about like like, are there any Christmas lights? I mean, there are in the movie that they see, but, like, on houses there aren't, right? There isn't, like, decorations. It isn't really, like, you don't see Santa Claus in it. it this is a holiday movie and a Christmas movie, 
but it's about a area that is celebrated that I just wasn't as familiar with. So I uh, mean, it's like, that is the interesting part. That's, that's the draw, even though they changed the name of the fucking thing when they released it in other countries. Um, Agreed. The, what we're commenting on is the qualities that the movie has and whether it, it was around Christmas or not, those qualities would still exist. Well, I got to just wrap up then, Doug, on the most important question here that I think is just the way to finish our discussion. Um, would you eat all them fishes? Oh, man. I mean, you got to remember where I'm from, right? Yeah, you grew like, up with a, your t- own fish, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, honestly, seriously, like stuffed squid and, I mean, not shrimp, just like them. We couldn't have afforded shrimp when we were growing up. But, like, in Newfoundland, I don't know if you even know this, Liam. I think they may refer to it in that movie and maybe in the thousands of TikToks my wife sends to you that every time she sees anything regarding Newfoundland, she does she'll everything send it over. she sends it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that where I grew up, cod is king, right? Cod fish is what yes, made Newfoundland yes. and also killed it. Uh, so. The fact that they're they're eating cod in this, even though what they show on the screen is not cod. See, I am from Newfoundland. Um, the the fish, the fact that it's centered around fish, is maybe one of the things that was most relatable to me. Though that said, in Newfoundland, the big family gatherings have their own um, food traditions that are not centered around fish. Uh, Newfoundland notoriously has a meal called Jigs Dinner, which is a lot of very boiled, boiled, boiled vegetables and meat and Paul put on a plate together. Mm, delicious. Uh, <laughs> with Newfoundland, a lot of, but the, the idea of soaking salt fish, boy, that is absolutely a tradition that I relate to very, very strongly. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot here that feels Newfoundland adjacent. So to me, uh, just going back to your question. Yeah, I love fish. I mean, even though I'm now a vegetarian, uh, I sometimes do still sneak fish. I know it makes me evil uh, and I'm not feeling good about, good about it. I'm trying to get rid of that in 2023, but, uh, yeah, hey, look, the fish are already dead. They're on the table. Might as well uh, make their sacrifice worth something. I I mean, I hear you. Uh, I am deathly allergic to fish. So this is, a, in a sense, uh, there are two parts of this. Uh, there's a bunch of parts of this movie, despite me loving it, that are very alienating. One is uh, the thing that you related to, uh, having <laughs> having family around. Don't get that. That's an alien concept. Uh, sure. Uh, but then the other parts is the fish because I can't eat fish. I can eat shellfish, so that that looked good. But all the fish, it's like that's death to me. And then finally, this whole saltfish phenomena. Why yeah. get the fish that you have to soak in water for days? It just it's so counterintuitive to me. And and it is one of the best jokes of the film. The constant reminder that he fucked up the 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 what is it? What was the name of the bakla ba ba. Uh, I can't remember. I know that she, bacala. She, the, the, oh, the yeah, bacala was bacala. too salty. It was too salty. I, I love that, actually. The, it's one of those jokes that isn't funny the first time, but some jokes get funnier the more you hear them. And so when they just will never let it go, I love that. But uh, the very concept of it is so fucking alienating to me. I'm just like, I just wouldn't eat that. I just wouldn't get that fish because I don't fucking understand. Uh, but that being said, I, you know, I also like this movie. That's why I suggested it. I was worried on rewatch it wouldn't be charming. It is. But I do think like, A, for some of our audience, it's going to be too much of what it is. A, 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 an indie kind of twee Christmas movie. I think some people, this is, this is anathema. You will not like this movie. Other people, I think they might be a little bummed, as we were discussing, that this is um, 
a bit regressive in some of its gender politics. Let's put it that way. It's not, you know, this isn't a Jordan Peterson tract or something like that, but it's, it's certainly not, it's certainly not, I I would put out there a fully feminist movie in any way, shape or form. And uh, it didn't bum me out hard, but it's just something I noticed both times I watched it that I just thought uh, this part of the movie is not the strongest part of the movie, but I think the parts of the movie I like kind of overwhelm that. So I still recommend it. I think it's really good. I I think people should see it. Uh, And then now people can just turn off the show because we're about to get into something that no one should ever watch ever again. Now now that we're finished with the misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I just give my final thought. Just to get my final thoughts on it, uh, I, I do. I think it's a very sweet movie. I think it's very nice. I think it feels very lived in and real. Uh, you can tell it that the filmmakers, you know, that they were really putting their heart out there. And, and they has some charming performances as well. I don't think it's necessarily a great movie. It's not even one that I'm necessarily going to revisit. But it is one that I hope that people, if any of this sounds um, like something that you might enjoy or maybe might connect to your family history, it, it's probably worth checking out. And uh, it's available on a lot of, of, of streaming services. I think it might be available for free via the Plex streaming service. But yeah, it's easy to find out there if you want to see it. Yeah, you know, it's it's not it's not amazing, but you know, it's fine. I probably will rewatch it at some point, Doug, just because I don't like so many Christmas movies. It's nice to have one that I don't hate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All In right, fact, we're you g- can watch it with your wife. I mean, that that's a nice thing too. That's that part's nice too. All right, we're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back. We're gonna talk about a movie that I would bet money has never been talked about on a podcast before. Maybe? Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Christmas party is interrupted by a violent psychopath in a Santa suit, a maniac with the powers of the Grim Reaper, a killer cheerleader, and a demonic ghost. There is no hope for them. Watch as they die. It's the movie Scream for Christmas from the year 2000, directed by Rob Avery, whose only other directing credit is 2006's Slashers Gone Wild, but has some other uh, makeup and acting credits in low-budget horror films. Also written by Rob Avery, and he's a triple threat, Liam, because he also appears in the film as the killer Santa Claus. We also have some uh, uh, other performers. I guess I'll name them. You'll never have heard of them. Molly Allen, Lincoln Barry III, Dave Barry, Josh Bullard, Matt Bouchard. One of the people listed here, Liam, is Nicole Appleton, which I think is from the uh, the girl group All Saints. But that is not, even though that is the picture that is uh, the, and, and uh, the profile attached to this person on the imdb listing that is not that person this is a child actor that is in this film while the person in question would be a full-grown adult at the time uh i also wanted to mention that this feels to me and this is sometimes i something that you see in ultra low budget filmmaking this feels like a remastered version of this movie um 
I think that some of the special effects and probably the, the a lot of the material that you enjoyed most, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, was probably uh, sweetened and added after the fact. Certainly the soundtrack to me, the audio feels like something that was probably cleaned up years later, most likely so it can uh, appear on streaming services. This kind of movie reflects very closely the kind of movie that we would have covered on the No Budget Nightmares podcast that I did for many years, which featured micro-budget DIY cinema. Uh, and this reflects that attitude very much. This is obviously a movie that they did not have a strong plan of in advance. Uh, a lot of the dialogue feels like it's made up on the spot. A lot of the scenarios don't fit together. Characters are supposed to interact, and they seem to have been uh, filmed at different times. The acting is less than amateur, uh, and the plot itself doesn't make any sense. So with that in mind, Liam... <laughs> What did you think of 2000's Scream for Christmas? I mean, so let me uh-huh. start let me start with the first thing that's actually kind of interesting, which is Please. This, this movie came out in 2000. I'm assuming they probably started filming it in like 98 maybe. Uh, because it's it feels like they the 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 ways that the length of hair changes throughout shots of the movie that this could have been shot over two full years, right? Um if you miss the way that people dressed at local <laughs> punk and metal shows in 1999, this is worth watching. Uh, the The fashion choices in this thing are at times just so on the nose for this time period. Like you're at a slam metal show or something like that in 99. It's like, the, I mean, the, from the dudes, uh, very tight uh, tank top over his way too big denim shorts with wallet chain and boots, <laughs> his very long goatee and his split down the middle hair with the little curls in the front. Oh God. I've, I've seen this dude all through my life at various local shows that I wish I wasn't at, you know, uh, let alone the various young ladies in the movie who are supposed to be playing cheerleaders, but never feel the need to look like cheerleaders, including a young woman with a straight up skinhead haircut that I'm like, yes, what cheerleader has the I know. look? It's so ridiculous. Um, plus just the, the, it's the cross between Hot Topic and Delia's. This is a movie where, at the end, it should have said, thank you to Hot Topic and Delia's for supplying the 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 uh, fucking outfits for this movie. Uh, and it's weird, I guess, in a movie like this to be talking so much about the outfits. But I will say, for me, it's important, Doug, because a lot of movies from the later 90s, early 2000s, no one dresses how people actually dressed for the most part, right? They dress like how maybe rich people dressed. And you'll hear people say, oh, it's so 90s. Like, I guess, for example, like dirty work is very 90s in the way that people dress in it, right? Like <laughs> stuff like that. But but rarely do you see this slice of life of 1999 immortalized in any media, really. So seeing it was like a fucking, it was that kind of, uh, a thing that I guess is nostalgia, but also it's haunting and upsetting, so it's not nostalgia. Uh, that being said, uh-huh. nothing about this movie makes any sense. Uh, not just overall. From shot to shot, it's unclear what's supposed to be happening. That's um, right. Uh, the most innovative and interesting parts of the movie during the main section of the movie are these like weird commercial bits that feel like maybe beyond these folks being influenced by bad straight-to-video horror movies, they were also influenced by, like, 
I don't know, Monty Python or Mr. Show. Like there's just these weird moments that are just surreal. And while they're not necessarily well executed, they at least show a level of creativity that the actual action of the film lacks in every way. So every part that you would actually call plot, I guess, with quotations around it, is as uninteresting as possible. I've seen better videos made by youth group kids. Like if anyone follows that Christian Nightmares Instagram where they post uh, awkward (laughs) Christian shit, the videos that these awful Christian fascists make to shame people about their genitals are better done than this movie. Oh, yeah. When it comes to the action-y stuff. But these uh, surreal asides that I think are done to add a sense of humor to the film – Again, not well executed, but so creative that I briefly thought, well, maybe this movie will get better. And here's the thing, Doug. I was fucking right. Because at a certain point, which feels like they just were like, we don't know what to do with the movie. We have to go off the wall. The movie goes off the fucking wall and becomes a live action anime. And if the whole movie had been that, people pretending to fight each other with awful after effects, guess what, Doug? (laughs) I'm fucking in. I'm in 100%. Granted, also that section was shorter. So, uh, yeah. as a as as just a thing, if you want to just find this thing and just watch the last fifteen minutes, I think as a thing for fifteen minutes, it's pretty amusing. As an actual movie length, well, I mean, it's short for a movie, but as a as a thing over an hour, it's torture. But these fifteen minutes are pretty fucking fun. And if the whole thing had been that, but also maybe half an hour. I think I'd be in. I'd I'd still say it's a piece of shit, but it's a funny and fun piece of shit. Until they get to this actually insane live action anime where Santa is fighting someone who hates him. Until they get to this part, everything else is basically torture with brief asides that are not funny, but at least Mm -hmm. break the monotony of the, I'm a killer and I talk low. I'm also a killer and I talk low. I'm a girl, so I'm either being abused or I'm threatening to kill everyone. Also, let's have sex. And it's just like, what is happening? I mean, not don't get me wrong, y'all. There's no sex scenes. But there's a couple of times where these young women are trying to speak in a seductive manner and failing. Uh, failing awkwardly, really. Um, you know, the only the only thing about this that was really interesting at all, besides just the idea that this thing got made and finished, uh, was that while many sections of the music is the worst imaginable kind of new metal thing, there are occasional points where the music gets heavy in a way that isn't metal. It kind of sounds like screamo, and I think who, what local band? Because this is clearly not someone who's on a label. What local band did they con into giving them music to put in this movie? And is that local (laughs) band embarrassed to be associated with this movie or not? I don't know. But the the, 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 the heavy parts, Doug, that's not mall metal, which is what all these kids obviously listen to. Uh, It's like a weird sort of heavy kind of screamo hybrid that in 99 was pretty popular. But I wouldn't associate with this movie, which very much has more of a hot topic vibe than than a scream vibe you know so and, i don't know again, it's, i wonder i wonder if some of that music might have been added like later i bet it was later, i bet it yeah. was but it's demo quality it's not a band that recorded it in like a real <laughs> studio you know which is also funny to hear in a movie to hear demo quality heavy music but uh that's it that's it the, the asides are kind of funny and i wish that they were better executed and there was more of them and the ending is like so over the top that by that point i was kind of like having fun with it but uh but most of the movie is a fucking torture slog that is uh misogynist even though one of the points of it is that the misogynist character is a bad guy 
in its execution, it's still kind of misogynist. And the fact yeah, that the only female character that's an actual character, well, there's two. There's the woman who wants to kill everyone, who is the worst. And then there's a woman who mostly isn't a character until she becomes a cheerleader ninja at the end, which felt maybe a little racist. I wasn't sure. Uh, and that's it. That's all I got, Doug. That's, that's the whole thing. Well, she's a, she's a person of color, so I guess she's also is allowed to be Japanese, I guess, in that sequence. Uh, I don't she, fucking know, man. So just these asides that you mentioned, you're exactly right. They're definitely the most creative part of the movie. But I guarantee you that they were created after the fact when they found yes. out that the movie part only ran like a half hour. So they needed to pad out. Like, explain to me the sequence where our lead, who are, again, our lead, he puts on a Santa hat and a hockey mask and starts killing people. These people he's killing are his friends, right? He went to this place with them. Um, but like, there's a scene where he's at a park and that woman that we were just talking about, who becomes an anime character at the end, she calls him over and then she just beats him with a stick. And then he goes home and then his mother is angry that he got beaten up. So she trains him by also kind of beating on him. Like, what's that all about? Oh, that's why we're supposed to be sympathetic for him as a character. Are that we was, supposed was, to be sympathetic for him? Oh yes, that is what that is one of the many things that suck about this movie is that you're supposed to be rooting for Joe the killer the whole time. They're cheerleaders, Doug, <laughs> like so Joe they did, deserve to die. Even though, again, it never establishes that they're cheerleaders. It doesn't make sense that they're cheerleaders. They're not dressed. Uh, they don't dress or act like cheerleaders. Also, they're at a party. They're constantly talking about beer. No one is drinking anything the whole film. Nope. But but they're and at a party. Is in in a uh, an abandoned warehouse. That is obviously the only location they had available to themselves outside of the apartment of the director himself. I wanted to ask you about this scene at the very beginning. So there's a sequence at the very beginning, which takes place in the warehouse, where that uh, – I'm going to get her character name so we don't have to refer to her as as the – it's Muffy, the Kung Fu cheerleader. So Thanks. Muffy – Already an issue. I'm already out. What the fuck? Yeah. So Muffy goes into this warehouse, and there's also a guy there, and it's they're kind of teasing that he might be um, like a bad guy. And then she, he, he like jumps onto her, but she does recognize him. Th- that scene is disconnected from the entire movie, right? Doesn't make any sense in context. Then we get a sequence where Rob the Slasher, yes, who is not played by Rob Avery, the director. Yeah. He's played by a guy named Ted, I believe. By the way, I forget his last Ted name. Ted Chili. That's what it says his name is. That He's sitting at home. Him. I know. He's sitting at home. Yes. And he gets a letter saying that he gets a free vacation at work yes. from work. Yes. And then he goes off to a party and decides to kill people at the party. Yes. That's the plot of the movie. Yes. And But at that same party, there's a guy who wants to dress up like the Grim Reaper and also kill his own friends. Like, that's that's the idea of the movie. Yes. There's no... So, they're all friends. They're all hanging out. But also, every once in a while, one of them will go away and put on a costume and then murder the rest of them. That's the idea, yes. Okay. And also... So, okay, let's let's back up a little bit. Rob the killer, his, he's on vacation. We don't find out till later his job that he's on vacation from is a killer. He goes to the woods and he murders people who are litterers, right? Uh, and then there's this cheerleader party. And the cheerleader, again, we should look up her character name. I don't know what it is. But she is the one who attempts to seduce Rob later in a scene that right. is awkward and, and awful. Uh, she has set this up 
and become a cheerleader because she hates cheerleaders. In fact, her whole participation in cheerleading has been so she can kill cheerleaders. And the gentleman who is going to be the Grim Reaper is her boyfriend, who she has promised once he has murdered all the cheerleaders, she will finally uh, uh, have sexual intercourse with him. Though she tells the camera, because she's just talking to the camera for no reason, uh, Uh that that's also not true. That she will eventually kill him once he's killed all the cheerleaders. And that is the setup that we are... I mean, this is this film, Doug, is the definition of putting a hat on a hat. In fact, I would suggest that this film starts with a hat puts a hat on it and then makes three more hats and attaches those <laughs> to those hats because it's like this the the part of the motivation factor is the crazy santa played by the director Rob Avery right, who right. doesn't matter other than a really awful weird scene where he's complaining about santa on tv and rob the killer is watching him complain about santa right. on tv he shows up afterwards because rob the killer cannot defeat santa in a fight santa by the way is not a jolly uh, saint who brings presents to children, but simply a holder of a copyright, which he makes billions of dollars with every year, and he kills people who disrespect Christmas just to protect his copyright. Also, despite the fact that that he is Santa Claus and that the killer is wearing a Santa Claus hat, there's no other suggestion that this movie takes place during Christmas. It's not snowing. They're all wearing, like, summer clothes when they're outside. So what makes this a Christmas movie? It's south. It's it's Southern California, Doug. It doesn't. It's never gets. It's cold. Ohio. Is it Ohio? It's Ohio. Yeah, the whole movie. Yeah, takes you're right. Place and this is this is just is just a this is just a disconnect. I assumed it was California, but you're right. This is Ohio. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's not Christmas. He just wore a Christmas outfit for funsies, and then Santa came to because there is a suggestion that Santa is in a is also in a tank top. There's a lot of tank tops in this movie. Uh, tank tops and camis, which is like a tank top, but it's more designed to show off boobs. So um, there's a lot of tank tops in this movie, and Santa shows up in a tank top, which maybe suggests it's the off season, and he's there just <laughs> to protect his name. I mean, I mean, at least that makes some measure of sense. But you're right. The movie it's is the- called Scream for Christmas. So it should be set during Christmas. Look, why are we trying to figure out the the narrative logic of this movie? There is none whatsoever. <laughs> like I was saying before, like the idea that that the create most creative parts are almost certainly filler. Like there's a part where one character is going to one character is running away and the killer is going to cut them off, and it cuts to basically the actor who plays Rob the Slasher sitting down and in like a hoity-toity voice reading like a, an excerpt from a novel about cutting somebody off. That to me is clever, but to me it also screams, oh, we didn't shoot the stuff that makes it sense, makes it make sense that he would cut this character off in, in the actual movie itself. You got to do what you got to do, I guess. I just, I, I, the movie is very bad. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if we've made that clear enough yet. It's bad even for a micro-budget movie. It's n- nonsensical in a way that isn't, clever it's nonsensical because they didn't know how to make a movie so they are missing a lot of the pieces there's characters that run uh, like like the two villainous characters the grim reaper and the santa claus killer they run and they're supposed to fight but instead of having them fight they'll just cut to one person just like dragging the corpse of the other person or the unconscious body away because they can't shoot fight scenes that that look anything but shit because that's what happens when you don't have choreography the movie ends with the director, the Psycho Santa, who we saw at the beginning on a public access show, like he fights Santa Claus and then a, a young girl appears named Angie 
And I was like, what is, what's going on with this? It's because at the very beginning, in this babbling moment, we see that Psycho Santa on the ground outside. And he's he's like obviously just making up shit, but he's talking about a character named Angie that he that he failed. It, it We're supposed to remember that, even though that character disappears for the next 60 minutes of the movie. It's a really... It's a really nonsensical and kind of unpleasant watch, to be totally honest with you. I mean, he actually mentions Angie in the in the in the TV show as well. Well, okay, but that's still in the first ten minutes of the movie, and then oh we don't no, hear it doesn't. Else it doesn't. It. I I I, want, I I don't want to seem like I'm defending this movie. I'm just saying, <laughs> I do think the Angie thing makes <laughs> sense to the extent that it is the only thing about his character. What it doesn't make sense is what does his narrative of wanting to kill Santa. Or at least beat up Santa because he can't kill Santa apparently in the movie. What does that have to do with Joe the killer? Like the 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 thing is is that I I actually found it to make sense who that character is. I just don't know why it's in the movie other than we just wanted to have someone fighting Santa Claus. I don't. The whole thing is weird. And then, he's, I mean, what and then I he found... heals Angie at the end, and then she yes. gets to stab Santa too because he's not dead. Yes, that's right. Uh, she uses his magic stick and breaks it on Santa. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's there's also some gore, by the way. Uh, there is a couple of scenes of like organ meat being pulled from people. Uh, so if that's not as much as I would have expected, uh, usually that's why these movies tend to exist. But there is a you know some makeup if, if that is something that you enjoy. But this is very much feels like a movie that had very very little planning. You know, and that is the reality of a lot of these. By the way, the real reason I think that that ending is like that, where the character that doesn't have a lot of motivation shows up, is because the one actor you can always uh, count on showing up to your set is you, the director. <laughs> I agree. I agree 100%. <laughs> uh, so, Liam, uh, would you recommend uh, the all time holiday classic Scream for Christmas to uh, our viewers out there? Our viewers, you, our listeners out there. You know what, Doug? I should have said this early on, but uh, I'm someone who, when people complain in their reviews about movies, about continuity, mm-hmm. oftentimes I roll my eyes because a lot of times it's nitpicky. There's no way you actually noticed that while you were watching it. You just went back later to see something. Uh, there's a few sure. exceptions here and there, but a lot of times continuity is a stick we use to beat a movie we already don't like. This is the first thing I've watched in a long time where... It was impossible to ignore the continuity errors throughout. <laughs> From scene to scene, there were continuity errors. It was overwhelming. And I think that is indicative of the entire thing. If a copy of this movie exists anywhere for someone to watch, which I assume it probably doesn't, but if it is, like let's say it's on YouTube and you found it, just fast forward to the end. I think watching these people pretend to anime fight each other is so stupid that it should just be a meme. Like, we should just cut that out and make it a meme and have people do weird things with it on TikTok. I think that's great. That part of it is fun. But even then, when it ends, it goes on too long explaining shit after that happens and thus ruins itself again. So it has this brief moment of over-the-top stupidity that I found amusing, and then it manages to shit on that moment before it leaves. What a fucking nightmare. Uh, I don't know, and this is saying a lot for people who've listened to us for a long time, Doug. Uh-huh. I don't know that you've ever made me watch anything as bad as this, and I'm <laughs> unsure that I could ever truly forgive you for it. So there you go. It's funny. I was looking for a micro-budget movie, a Christmas movie, that would be you know maybe fun to watch, and I did. 
really a rookie mistake and something that we would have knocked people for doing back on the No Budget Nightmares podcast, which is I read the description and was like, hey, that sounds like it'll be fun. And that's why I chose it. Uh, rookie mistake, completely my own fault, uh, particularly because this isn't an, an, even an easy movie to find. It's not like it's on Tubi. You can get it. It's on Vimeo on demand. You can per- rent a copy for two forty nine Canadian, which means I think probably a buck ninety nine American. So if you do want to see it, you can see it. And we will leave a link in the show notes for this if you are if you are really feeling that. But the fact is, there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of micro-budget movies out there. Uh, a lot of them are on streaming services like Tubi and even on Amazon Prime, where the, the it has the same level of quality in terms of, because it's amateur, because there are people who don't have any money and, and less skills. But this is even worse than a lot of those, because it really doesn't feel like there was any plan ahead of time. It felt like they were just, maybe the plan was, oh, it's a party and there's a killer killing people at the party. Even the, the fact that their cheerleader seems like it was something that was added after the fact because it makes so little sense. Uh, and also, wh- why would people hate cheerleaders? <laughs> that doesn't really make any sense to me either. It's a very poor movie. It's extremely poorly made. I cannot recommend it even for fans of micro-budget garbage. Uh, and frankly, I'm a little embarrassed that I chose it for us to watch it. <laughs> I don't think you should be embarrassed. I think that choosing shitty movies is kind of your bread and butter. But I do think like you want the shitty thing to also have something that is amusing about it. And it's just a bummer that it doesn't get there really until the end. And the only reason that part's amusing is because so much of it is such fucking torture to that point that it's like, oh, at least this is something weird. At least this is something that is just off the wall unexpected, you know? But – for the most part, it's just it's just an excruciating thing, and it's amazing to me that you can even still find it. And uh, by the way, this movie is – it runs for about 80 minutes, but 10 minutes of that are the slowest, most horribly made credits that you will ever see. Like it just – it crawls along because, again, this is another thing that low-budget filmmakers do. They'll slow down the credits to extend the length of their movie. There's even post-credits scenes. I don't know if you saw that, Liam. Um, where they're just ta- they show the animation like that little cheap animation that they showed early in the movie. They show the entirety of that again, and then they tease some sort of sequel, which of course would never happen as well. So yeah, you uh, I wouldn't say you get your money's worth with this, but it is almost the length of a full movie, which is about is about the highest compliment I can pay to 2000s Scream for Christmas. Liam, we're just about finished here on our holiday special. Before we finish up, I want to ask you. What are your hopes for the year 2023? Oh, man. That's a that's yeah. a tall order, Doug. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to stay in the realm of, like, small practical things because uh, the, the bigger hopes are probably just going to depress me later when I hear myself saying them. So I think realistic things I would hope for is – um, for us to do more uh, Twitch screenings uh, on the Cinebox sure. Twitch channel. Uh, I think for more people to join the Discord and for conversation there to just be a fun thing, you know, sort of build some community around that. Uh, for us to come up with yet another uh, concept for this fucking show that takes us in more <laughs> weird directions. Uh <laughs> You know, of course, as always, for more people to listen to the podcast and stuff like that. Uh, and, and and honestly, to get back into writing, I just think I have mm. uh, really abandoned writing for a long time. Um, and a lot of that is just because it's self-perpetuating. It's like working out. You, you stop working out for a little bit and then you 
have trouble getting back to it. And then by the time you finally say, I should do it again, it's been so long that it's just intimidating all the way through. You know, stuff that even used to be easy is now kind of scary. So I think it's just, I, I you know, you got to start somewhere and I'd, I'd like to get back into it. Uh, and of course, nationally speaking, you know, the complete collapse of the capitalist state and uh, a sure. turn towards mm. uh, either socialism or uh, anarcho-syndicalism, uh, whichever one we decide on. I don't, I don't really care at this point. As long yeah. as as long as it's not this shit, that's all I really need. Yeah, so, something's got to give, right, Liam? I mean, so I mean, enough I, is I, enough. honestly, honestly, I'll I'll take them social at this point. Just anything that isn't our current hellscape, I'd like to give a try if that's all right. All right. Well, if you are a listener and you have any uh, sway over the destruction of society as we currently know it, please push for that in the year twenty twenty three. I uh, I have. Uh, I have hope for the future that is very limited and seems to be shrinking by every month that passes. But uh, as as time goes by, I find myself turning to my friends and family all the more, maybe relying on them more and more. Uh, and I hope that uh, everyone is able to spend this holiday season with a loved one or loved ones. And if not, then I hope that in the year 2023 that you make those connections and are able to hold those people close because you never know how long you have with them. Hey, that's more depressing than I meant. For my statement about the year 2022 to be, uh, but no, I feel I feel good about my personal situation in the year 2022. But for me, and this might just be for me, whenever a new year starts, one of the things I think is how much tragedy will befall me before the end Fuck. of this year. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. And as I as I get older, the the likelihood of that is gets uh, larger and larger. And uh, and sometimes I feel like is this the tipping point where so much bad shit happens? And we you know we've seen it with our friends, right? There are lots of terrible things happening all to one person, all of the, you know in, in months long spans. And I'm like, I don't want that for me. How can I avoid it? And then you realize there's no way to avoid it. I don't mean to be a downer. I have some hope. I think there are lots of good people doing great things out there. And at the very least, I get to spend regular time with my good friend Liam O'Donnell on this show. And I get to spend time with the wonderful folks over at Cinepunks. And I get to, you know, record material that some people seem to enjoy. <laughs> give yeah. us feedback that they like listening to. And at the end of the day, uh, even if our voices are not heard and enjoyed by mass swaths of people, uh, knowing that there are people out there listening, that they're enjoying what we're putting out there, and that they enjoy the fact that we have devoted our lives to really some very useless and inconsequential topics is something that I appreciate very much, Liam. Yeah, I mean, I, I like important topics too, but uh, the, way my, <laughs> the way my brain works is it's just as easy for me to get wrapped up in this shit as it is anything else because that's who I am. I think, we talk a lot, I think we talk more about important topics on this show than a lot of our contemporaries because we use the, the, the non or the inconsequential topics as a jumping off point. To more consequential things. Yeah, we're over here like, let's talk about Scream for Christmas as a pre-9-11 movie. How does this represent <laughs> the world as we were preparing for the downfall of democracy? <laughs> Liam, if people do want to check out some of your past writing or some other, or uh, where your future writing will appear, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can head over to cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X. Uh, they'll find this show as well as a whole family of podcasts over there, uh, all of them awesome in their own ways, uh, and my writing and the writing of many others uh, on the site, plus a merch area. You know, order a T-shirt. Why not? Come on. 
Come on. It'll be fun for you because uh, I, I don't keep track of the Cinepunk shirt, so it'll take me possibly hours to find the size that you need. So put, put, <laughs> put, me, through, put me through that torture. I think that'll be great. Uh, Cinepunks is, of course, on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and... I guess Twitter. I mean, we'll see what fucking happens over there. It's still it's still unsure. Uh, but all those places you can find us: C I N E P U N X. And we are on Discord. Uh, hit us up on socials or shoot us an email: cinepunks at gmail If you would like to be invited to the Discord, it's open to all. We just don't post the link everywhere. Uh, and then you know, Doug, we do a lot of stuff here at Cinema Smorgasbord. We have a whole bunch of topics we cover all over the place some of the most useless shit you could hear people talk about sure. head on over mm-hmm. to cinemasmorgasbord.com and explore it let <laughs> us know what you think works what you think is a waste of time and i'm sure there's some crazy thing that you think no one will devote a whole bunch of time to email us about that we'd love to talk about it yeah Absolutely. I've had some people contact us about some potential show ideas for the year 2023. We're always open to the idea. Uh, and there might be some of our current podcasts that get retired in the next few months as well. And uh, But who knows? It's ever-evolving, ever-changing. It is a smorgasbord of cinema delights that you can check out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg, probably on Mastodon or Hive, depending on where the future holds. Uh, and of course, you can follow Liam on Twitter currently at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. If you want to give us a holiday present, you could leave us a review for the podcast on a podcast provider of choice, including iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Or you could just tell a friend. That always helps. Hey, n- nothing is more trustworthy than a podcast recommendation by a good friend. But for now, we are actually taking a break until the new year. We'll be back in 2023 with lots more content. Have a good holidays, everyone. Bye. Come with fire